everyone. Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of December 20th, 2017. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538, and I'll be your host once again, refreshed and ready and back after a week away. I'm joined, as always, by my co-podcasters. On the line from Chicago, we've got 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. Hey, Neil. How are you? Welcome back. Doing well, thanks. Yeah, it was very, very exciting to go to uh, spend time with my fellow cast members uh, down in Disney. Uh, and in studio, I have another fellow cast member, uh, 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. How are you? You uh, seem like you're uh, maybe getting over your permacold or sort of just still... No, no, no. Just going to be like this till June. <laughs> is it a seasonal affective thing or is it just... A, 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 is it this way every year? I got to dust my apartment, I think. Maybe it's that's just not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, while, while uh, Kyle, you know, does his weekly rendition of Michael Jordan's flu game. Uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers, checking in on the progress of the process and whether Philly is finally ready to return to the playoffs. We'll also bring you a small sample about Kawhi Leonard's return to the San Antonio Spurs. But first, let's hit the headlines. Okay, so let's hit the headlines, and maybe the biggest one of the beginning of this week was Monday's retirement of the two jerseys for Los Angeles Lakers legend Kobe Bryant, number 8 and number 24. He's the first player in NBA history to have not one but two different numbers lifted to the rafters by the same team. Uh, As part of that coverage, our ESPN colleague Kevin Pelton wrote, Uh, about the debate between which version of Kobe was better, the one who wore number 8 early in his career or the one who wore number 24 late in his career. Uh, Kevin picked number 8 because of defense and durability, but I wanted to open up to you guys. Which Kobe do you prefer best or would you like to, maybe which one would you like to see play? And are are those the same thing or are those two different things? So I'm going to take number 24. Okay. Um, Just as, you know, a fan basketball watching, you know, interest uh, because, well, for a few reasons. One is I have, uh, so my bad take on this is that any, you know, amazing play that you saw from number eight Kobe has a superior version as a T-Mac highlight. From that oh, that's hot. That's mm. a hot take. Yeah. But also number 24 just did more things. Yeah, yeah. Like Kobe played better defense while he's a younger man. But that year that he had to play essentially de facto point guard where he was playing point guard, but he was also shooting the ball all the time. Uh, that changed the way that like offenses were playing. Like you see a lot of that with the way that Russ Westbrook plays now. That with the way that Harden is playing with you know, in that Mike D'Antoni system, and that just attention that is being get drawn to that like perimeter player. Like he he again changed the way that like the, the league was playing and like had a greater effect um, than I think number eight. I I would take number eight, but not for any of the really deep reasons that Kyle had. I mean, Kyle's probably right, honestly, so I'll concede that. But I, I just – Kobe just could play a little bit more freely as number eight. Part of that was just who he had on his team. I, I think – I mean, he had the most dominant player in the game for a big chunk of that time, obviously. He was younger, and so some of the stuff that we think of when we think about Kobe, obviously the scoring, but also just the idea of the guy flying through the air and, and basically the dunk contest Kobe, the – the trendy Kobe. I mean, to some extent, stuff that the we were dating brandy now, the Kobe and the, at prom, the huge man. <laughs> clothes that everybody wore back in the day. Kobe was guilty of that too, but uh, he, he was just like the coolest guard in the league for a while. And I, I think after a while, Kobe became smarter. His game became more mature at a certain point, and and that happens with a lot of players, especially at that level. But 
he he becomes kind of the Kobe at that point where he's teaching students almost and he the sorts of plays you saw Michael make where he's faking guys out with the ball that was what Kobe did in the latter half of his career especially in the later years when he lost his athleticism a little bit but I love the athleticism and I think it made the game really exciting in a way that um, Kobe was great but it might not have been exciting to the same level all the time as it was when he went on those crazy streaks I mean he also had my favorite highlight of Kobe which is the you know aged Kobe pulling up from Neptune and (laughs) Was that an air ball? It might have been an air ball. Oh, yeah. Like, I know yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the play you're talking about. Um, as the third member of the booth here and maybe the deciding uh, tie-breaking vote, I'm going to go with number eight. So I agree with you, Chris, on that. Uh, but I think it, it's not a strong you know, uh, leaning toward that direction. And I think in general, the great thing about Kobe, first of all, the fact that his number change represented sort of a change in playing style and also pretty much perfectly split his career down the middle between the first half and the second half. It really gives you a test case of two players that played the game differently and probably are their effectiveness is dependent on what your hypothetical team that you're trying to build around Kobe needs. For instance, the early career Kobe was really kind of the ideal second banana type, uh, you know, a really great scorer, but could also take the backseat. He he could play defense, uh, shut people down uh, on the perimeter, and also, you know, was developing a three-point game, and then later in his career could be that just alpha dog top scorer. So in some ways, it's a testament to the greatness of Kobe's talent that you could take his career and split it in half and basically pick and choose which type you want based on the needs of a championship caliber team. And still win i think that that is you can't say that about pretty much many other players in the history of the nba you the way you mentioned that kind of makes me think about Kawhi leonard a little bit now his obviously not totally analogous at all and people will probably wonder why i'm even bringing it up but i think that with a lot of these guys i think it kind of happens in the nfl sometimes too when you look at like a guy like aaron Rodgers that when you don't have to be that number one option right away, a lot of times guys of Kobe's caliber are drafted and they're a number one or a number two pick. When you get a little bit of time to develop as a second option or a third option, or in Kawhi's case, maybe even a fourth option, you stuff kind of comes to you a little bit more slowly. You get more time to absorb it. You get to work on other parts of your game first. Kawhi became a lockdown defender. Kobe was a pretty good scorer from the get-go, and obviously as he kind of got more reps got really really good very quickly and you saw his numbers jump very quickly early in his career but not having to be that top scorer all the time and having other people on his team was really helpful to him I think and it helped him develop into the the lethal number one option that he was and I mean we talk about like not having to be like number one scoring option as like a burden of like development all the time but there are material ways that manifest so like we're seeing that kind of with Westbrook right now and you know obviously Westbrook pl- played a lot with Durant but um and like Harden earlier but there was always a lot of you know scoring and you know ball handling burden on him and like those systems didn't ask them to to do all that much so now you're seeing him like have to dial that back and like there are all these videos out there of like Russ kind of not going below the free throw line for entire possessions even though he doesn't have the ball and like these are muscles, these are whatever that are developed when you you are the second option, like Chris is saying. So, so yeah, like Kobe was playing in the triangle. Kobe understood that yeah, you have the ball, like you you know, go to the rim, but like no, no no, we're going to like have all this like you know kind of scripted movement, and you know you have to do things when you don't have the ball. 
And yeah, that was super valuable. Good learning uh, development for a young player who would be, you know, kind of a precocious scorer, I think, otherwise on, on a lesser team. One last thing I wanted to touch on with Kobe was just his influence on the game itself. There's been a lot of reflection about that this week with the Jersey retirements. And Chris, you wrote a story for us this week about Kobe as the last gunslinger of the NBA. What, what did you mean by that? <laughs> well, I noticed a lot of people disagreed with me uh, on that and immediately said, what about Russ? Who <laughs> That I means that you're on to something. In the story, and honestly, Honestly, I think there is a good argument to be made that maybe Russ is the closest thing you have to Kobe. I don't think that even DeMar DeRozan, by the way, both of those guys, Westbrook and DeRozan are, are both L.A. guys or from that area, went to USC and UCLA and both in some ways, I, I don't know if you quite use the word mentored. I think DeRozan, you might be able to use that accurately. Not so much with Westbrook, but they're at least friendly with Kobe and that Kobe has even said about Westbrook that he's someone that I see that same sort of fire in. And frankly, what I meant by it when I wrote it was that someone that would kind of run through a wall if it meant that he could play in a game, even if he's injured and banged up on the one hand, which I think the league is moving away from that. I wouldn't even say slowly, pretty quickly trying to move away from that. And coaches are resting their players. Players are asking for more nights off. We had a story last year that mentioned that teams are resting players earlier and earlier. And so there's that portion of it. But also... Uh, Kobe wasn't totally concerned with his numbers in the way that when we talk about him measuring up with the Michael Jordan, his field goal percentage was never quite as high. Kobe was never really a great three-point shooter. Uh, Kobe was not ever concerned about taking the most efficient shots. If anything, and I mentioned this in the story, Kobe statistically took the hardest shots in the league for the last three or four years he was in the league, at the very least. That was before we had data to really analyze that stuff on a deeper level before. And so... Kobe, if he was worried about those things and worried strictly about numbers and about upping his field goal percentage, he wouldn't have taken the shots he did. And I think guys now, where you look at guys that refuse to take these half-court heaves at the end of a quarter, even though it could be potentially a difference in them winning or losing a game, guys are too worried about their statistics now and about contract incentives uh, like Mo Harkless last year to really emulate what Kobe's doing other than maybe Westbrook. Yeah, and when you talk about comparisons to modern players, first of all, like you were saying about stats, I mean, you have to acknowledge that Kobe was sort of this benchmark player as analytics were coming of age and sort of all of the metrics that came out were measuring themselves almost in some ways about what about Kobe's game they could accurately or maybe in some cases inaccurately capture. There are a lot of metrics that said that he wasn't good because he was so, you know, less efficient than a player like LeBron. But, you know, you also had metrics that were going way too far in that direction and needed to be dialed back. So almost using him as a litmus test, uh, these metrics sort of fine-tuned themselves and maybe got a better understanding of what made a player valuable in the end. And the other thing is the the players of today are not playing against defenses that look the same in a lot of ways because of Kobe and the way that he played. Uh, it, it, what do you think about that, Kyle? So, so yeah, there's a few things. Like one, we can go back to what you're talking about of uh, the stats developing. And yeah, he was like, obviously Kobe is good and valuable. And a lot of the earliest stuff was arguing that he wasn't. But like, we've seen this in other sports too. I mean, Ichiro, when he came in for years, people were just like, oh, he's just a hits machine, doesn't walk, like the opiate, like it's all low. Um, and it took years, like a decade for like the system to come around to be like, oh, by the way, Ichiro is really valuable. <laughs> and uh, he's good. And like, that was a lot the case with early stats with Kobe of being, 
oh yeah, Kobe might not actually be valuable to a team because he's you know he's a volume scorer, he's like low efficiency, but was so good at the thing. And, and again, like there was the entire generation of like Jordan clones or whatever. So there was Vince, there was Tracy, there you know, there was Kobe, obviously, and you know the lesser on down the line of just like the the scoring guards in the league. And everyone's like, oh, these are all Jordan clones. Came up watching Jordan. Um, and like Kobe has his own clones now. So like the guys Chris was mentioning, I would put Kyrie in there too. Who's like one of the number one like Mamba mentality guys of, you know, everyone, you know, taking their shot, saying Kobe, uh, whatever. <laughs> Maybe it goes in, probably doesn't. Um, but beyond that, the defenses had to be keyed to a guy who was going to play like that. And that was the Tom Thibodeau defense right, eventually. Right. That, But like before that, even in the 04 finals against the Pistons, uh, the Pistons just decided there's nothing we have for Shaq. We're going to single him, and we're going to blitz the perimeter. Like, Rick Vox, like, these other guys, like, just are not going to get off. Kobe is not going to get off. He shot 30-something percent in that series. Yeah, one of his worst uh, playoff series, if not finals, appearances, for sure. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, the early thing of, like, defense just deciding, like, no, 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 no. We have to take away this perimeter option, and that's because they couldn't do that in the Jordan era. The, the legal defense uh, rules of the time were such that like you could put four guys on one side of the floor, ISO on the other side, and just be like, okay, Michael's going to do something right here. And, you know, Kobe wasn't able, like, with Kobe, like, you were able to, you know, double him a little more aggressively, a lot more aggressively. And so that defense just changed the way that the league looks right now because after the Thibodeau defense was just, you know, messing things up for years, um, in Boston, in Chicago, elsewhere, uh, well, teams decided to run a lot more pick and roll. Teams were doing a lot more off ball screens in Miami, San Antonio, elsewhere, and like a lot more triangle concepts, stuff like that. And eventually we just got the switching defense, which everyone's doing the switch and drop and, you know, whatever in ice. And that is the NBA that we're living in today, a lot in part because Kobe was just good enough that like he forced teams to do that in a way that they kind of didn't for other perimeter stars because, like, they weren't effective enough at the thing. Yeah, the death of, like, the hero ball ISO on the wing type of uh, player in in a lot of ways can be traced. The way that we play the game now can be traced back by teams just trying to stop Kobe Bryant in, in a lot of ways. Okay, so let's leave Kobe there and move on to the Philadelphia 76ers. But first, we're going to hear a word from another sponsor. There's a bunch of reasons you will love shaving with Harry's Razors. There's the quality of the blades, the closeness of the shave, the comfortable glide. That's just a few. Harry's is so confident that you're going to love their blades, they'll give you a trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash the lab. All you have to do is pay for the shipping. Why Harry's? Well, Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price, which is why over 3 million guys have switched over to Harry's. Jeff and Andy were two ordinary guys who were fed up with buying overpriced razors, and they started Harry's to fix the shaving business. They bought their own German factory with over 100 years of blade-making experience to ensure the highest quality, and all products are backed with a 100% quality guarantee. Harry's also offers their blades at half the price of the leading five-blade razor, selling directly to you over the internet. Claim your free trial offer from Harry's today, a $13 value for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash the lab. You'll only have to cover the shipping. Your free trial set will include a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. To get your free trial, go to harrys.com slash the lab. That's one word, T-H-E-L-A-B. Right now, that's harrys.com slash the lab. 
The Philadelphia 76ers have already treated their long-suffering fans to some highs and some lows this season. After a surprising 13-9 start, they've dropped seven of their last eight games, including Tuesday night's home loss against the lowly Sacramento Kings. Yet, also, this is the most competitive the Sixers have been since they began their ambitious teardown project under former GM Sam Hinkie more than four years ago. So, let's begin with our talk about the Sixers by checking in on the franchise's young cornerstones, and by whom I mean Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Chris? You and I wrote a little about them early this season. What makes that pair so special? Well, going back to some of what we were kind of alluding to just a minute ago with Kobe and, you know, we were kind of referencing Shaq without using his name. That That's kind of maybe not Kobe, but I think if you go back to Shaq's career in Orlando, the idea of Penny and Shaq, it's just rare to have a perimeter guy or a ball handler to go along with a post player that's potentially as dominant as Embiid is. And so that's what's special is that you've got two guys that are under the age of 23 and that they both could end up being top 10 players on the same team at the same time. And you've got some pieces around them that, you know, who knows uh, who will be around them long term. But when you've got two difference makers like that, both of whom look like they're going to be good on both sides of the ball, Embiid clearly makes a big impact on both sides of the ball, and Simmons has been better than advertised defensively and is already really good offensively. That's really rare, and it gives you the opportunity to do a lot of different things in terms of versatility, in terms of switching, and it allows you to kind of have the two, one or two hardest things figured out, who your cornerstones are, and then just fill in around that. And it, I would take them over any other team in the East long term because of that sort of setup so long as they stay healthy. Yeah, you mentioned the defensive metrics for Simmons. Uh, In some ways, they're better if you look at something like real plus minus than his offensive metrics right now. And yet at the same time, you know, with this combo of size and athleticism and ball handling and playmaking, you know that he's going to develop into, you know, an incredible impact offensive player. And then Embiid is just ridiculously advanced for a young big man. I looked this up. Uh, He and Boogie Cousins, if, if Embiid can kind of hold it up over the whole season, are the the only players uh, since 1974 under age 25 to have a season where they had a 15% rebound rate, a 15% assist rate, and a 30% usage rate, and also were better than uh, two points above average according to defensive box plus minus. So it's kind of this whole package in one player that, granted, if he can stay healthy, and we'll talk about that later, uh, seems just incredibly scary to have uh, as a big man in the game today. Right, and that's the, one of the things that's going to make this team a little easier to build around than most because they have these players who, like, you're bundling a lot of things together. So if you think about, like, uh, building a contender or whatever, and you need to get a certain amount of things on the floor as much as possible in as many given lineups, uh, this is the thing that makes the Warriors so, like, ridiculous because they have Draymond Green, now they have KD, who bundle, like, this defense, both perimeter and interior. They have shooting, they have passing, they can do all these things at once. And Embiid obviously can do a lot of things at once. Simmons is a more interesting case because he's imbalanced. Like, he can do a lot of things. He is ridiculous going to the rim. He's already shooting 73 75% at the rim as a rookie, uh, like, second-year rookie, whatever. But that that's ridiculous. He's already a very good passer. Like, those two things on their own are probably enough to make him, like, a, whatever, Ricky Rubio, like, 
Rajon Rondo era thing, but we kind of want more from him than just being an enormous Rajon. <laughs> yeah, the the big elephant in the room is the shooting, right? For for Simmons, uh, here's a here's a mind blowing stat that you pointed out to me, Chris. Is that first of all, he still has yet to make a three pointer in his career so far, uh, and he's only taken one three that wasn't a just a half court heave at the uh, at the buzzer. Uh, and, and also on top of that, he's shooting fifty five percent from the line, and uh, we're already seeing opponents do a little hack a Simmons. Uh, so far, right, which is kind of interesting at this point in his career. Um, so that was the Washington game, like where it first came out, and after the game, he was like, "Oh, that's not going to happen for long. Like, I'm obviously going to start making them." Like, he's hit 52, percent which is worse than his career. <laughs> that's this season, even worse whatever. than it was yeah, before. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm, but this is the thing where he doesn't have to get that much better. Like, he can't shoot 50 percent uh, because, like, then you don't want him going the line. But if he gets that to 65, 66, 70 percent, like that's respectable. Same thing with the three. Like he's not a a role player who's like only out there to make threes. He's a dude who just needs to be respected a little bit. So he can't be not taking them at all. But like if he's shooting like twenty percent's bad, twenty five percent's bad, thirty percent. Well, if a guy's still like, below average, below but... average, but like it's something that you have to at least consider. Thirty three, thirty five percent. All of a sudden, like that's league average. That's not good. It's like thirty four percent. Whatever. Call thirty four percent. If he's shooting that and he's shooting some pull ups, sh- shooting some like you know catch and shoot. All of a sudden, that's an entirely like different dimension that like the defense has to account for, and that's when like he's just like absurd. Like that's when you see like the LeBron level like jump, whatever. It, it becomes the question that we have about Giannis: What happens with Giannis when he learns how to shoot? Uh, Simmons, in some ways, might not have exactly the 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 length and the strides that Giannis does, but he's a lot more bulky than Giannis is even now. I mean, Giannis has built. Ondo's frame a little bit for sure, but Simmons was already kind of filled out. And I remember seeing the the numbers last year, and some people actually questioned if this, this was why he got hurt with his foot last year. Is that he? What did he come into the league at something like two ten or two twenty, but then got up to like two forty or two fifty by the time the season started last year? And people were like, "How did he put on that much weight?" And and so I mean, he's just a big enough guy to wear defenses already don't really know how to play him but if he does develop a jump shot which a lot of people uh kevin o'connor probably being the the head of this crew are wondering if he's even shooting with the right hand by right hand i mean the the correct hand uh he kind of messes around i wouldn't even say messing around because he's clearly trying to tweak what he's doing uh, I was there for a shoot around. Actually, the last time they played Sacramento, they lost that game too out west. And I was watching him at shoot around and he was taking mid range jumpers with his right hand, even though he shoots, uh, with his left. And he airballed four of the six shots I watched him take from mid range. And, but the irony there is that when he's shooting free throws and that when he's trying them with his right hand, uh, again, I don't think he's messing around with it. He looks more natural that way. And so I do, I, I would not be surprised at all if at some point he does switch what hand he's using. Uh, I think he's repped by the same agent that Tristan Thompson has, and he obviously did the same thing. And so he's, he's still figuring it out. And that's what makes this so scary is that this guy is dominant on a level. I mean, I think he missed a triple double in his last game by one rebound or maybe one assist, but he's basically third or fourth in the league in triple doubles as a rookie. It's scary. Well, before we like wave around Tristan Thompson, Tristan's free throws have been much worse the last two seasons than they were in his career. So, like, it hasn't helped him too much. So, 
Yeah, you know, it makes me think of the old Charles Shackelford line about being uh, amphibious uh, with being able to use your left and your right hand. Uh, but the other thing that's kind of standing out about Philly is that they also have some decent role players around the the core two stars that we've been talking about, uh, most notably Robert Covington, who was this great find that they unearthed during the dark years of the process and is sort of this amazing 3 and D guy. He's making 41% from three the best defensive small forward in the league, according to real plus minus. And then, of course, you got JJ Reddick, who, of course, always lights out from the, uh, from the outside. And so it's a little bit of proof that if you have a team like they were a couple of years ago, where it's like nothing but these types of role players, you win 15 games or fewer and, and you're awful. But it just takes like one star, or in this case, two stars around role players, and suddenly their value becomes amplified much more. It's not additive. It's, it's multiplicative of the value of, of a player like Covington when he's playing next to people like Embiid and Simmons. Yeah, being set up for for shots like in the way that you like it exactly is a big thing. Like you're seeing that in Houston this year where like the big phenomena we've talked about a few times, but last season uh, when Harden was setting up uh, teammates for all the threes they took, they shot worse than when he was passing to them. This season, uh, they have Chris Paul in town. And all of a sudden, Trevor Ariza, like who shoots well from three, like one out of four years, whatever, decides <laughs> that this is a year. Like Ryan Anderson is the best shooter in the league. Eric Gordon, like shooting very well. And this is a thing like where you're just playing with a dude who like gives it to you as you like it. That changes the way that you're playing. So now in Philly, they have Simmons. And last season, Covington, I think, had a bad shooting season, like 33%, something like that. And he's been hovering around 35 37%. And, like, last season, like, he was trending downward, like, very obviously. This season, he started out, like, the first month, 46%, something like that. His splits have gone down month by month, so he's coming back down to earth a little bit, like, as you assumed he wasn't going to shoot 45% from three all season. But, but yeah, obviously playing with Simmons as the, the primary distributor is going to help. Obviously having J.J. Redick also on the floor often is helping, like, the spacing because, like, they really didn't have that much shooting last season. And, you know, if Markel Fultz ever gets his ass back on the floor, that will help also, presumably. Yeah, we should mention that Fultz has not played at all since October 23rd due to a shoulder injury. Uh, and yet, you know, before this current slump, they were looking really good. A lot of people were gushing about them. We've been gushing about them in this segment. Uh, we should talk a little bit about the slump that they're in right now. Is this just the consequence of a young team? They're still eighth youngest in the league, according to the average age of the roster. And they went on the road for four of their last six games. Is this something that happens? Is Or, or is this a, a case of we were hyping them up so much early in the year because we're so excited about just something coming out of this team with uh, with all of the the young talent that they have that maybe their playoff chances were a little overstated uh, right now our, our model at 538 gives them a 45 percent chance of making the playoffs which is certainly higher than it's been for philly in a long time but at the same time i don't know should we have pumped the brakes or is this just growing pain that a team goes through at this stage of their development i, I think we were a little quick to i don't think anyone crowned them but Part of it was just that nobody had expectations for the East at all. And so now that the East is actually pretty decent from top to bottom, maybe not as strong at the very top as the West, but because it's strong top to bottom for the most part, they could get left out of the playoffs. I remember saying at the beginning of the season, I didn't think they'd make the playoffs just because it's early. It's very rare that a team this young all of a sudden just kind of comes out of being horrible and then is ready to contend or ready to you know be a four or a five seed. So that might have been too lofty but I mean look at some of the things that are wrong with this team 
the biggest one that jumps out, they're, they don't take care of the ball very well. Simmons is, I mean, and I think guys that handle the ball as much as Simmons does, I think Simmons averages the most touches per game in the league and maybe the most passes as well. Um, but between him and then Embiid, who is great as he is and as, as good a passer as he is, still turns the ball over. And I think Sarge does as well more than anybody in the league when he's double teamed and Embiid gets double teamed a lot because of how proficient he is down there and so the fact that these are your two stars and that they're still trying to navigate how much attention they're getting defensively because everybody else around them is a role player um, they turn it over way more than anybody else and so that's a big problem that they've got to get ironed out and the fact that they're still trying to figure out how to survive when it's just Simmons out there and not Embiid especially after last week when I think he played three consecutive games where he, in each successive game, broke his career high for minutes played, especially in that three-overtime game they had against the the Thunder. I mean, part of that's just going to be a process of building out the roster, too, because, like, when Embiid isn't in there, like, they don't have, like, the same level. Like, Rashawn Holmes is, like, a exciting player, but, like, he's not Embiid in there, like, kind of deterring shots around the rim, like, the same kind of way. And, like, that's a thing, like, if you're if we are just going with LeBron comparison, like that's a thing that you need around LeBron, like Tristan or whomever is going to play that role of the rim protector and like, you know, finisher around the rim. Uh, you need one of those to come off the bench, like Birdman back in the day, whatever. Um, so it's also just finding out about these players. Like Jared Bayless is playing like 26 minutes a game for them, like which is a lot. Like it's just a process of getting the players in place that like you like. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier of like, building around stars is different than like acquiring stars philly has like done the thing philly set out to do we're going to get a couple stars and they have them but as we've seen in oklahoma as we've seen down in like actually the magic team's a bad example but like there are other talented teams that like just have never like gotten it together once they got those uh, those players that they liked and like that's what uh like that's where they are now that's why what you were just saying before about Fultz, if they ever get the guy back, which they will, if if he gives them anything, again, especially if Embiid is going to miss time, which he probably should just to safeguard the guy's knees and his legs, that's an amazing sort of – to have a number one pick there that you can potentially, whether they're bringing him off the bench, if they're using him in their main five, uh, just someone that they can use so that it's not all on Simmons in, in the same way that we've seen with some of these other teams – the fact that Golden State can always kind of stagger Durant and Steph so that you've always got one on the court. Having that just with perimeter players and then also having Embiid to be able to sprinkle in whenever he's able to play, that could make a huge difference for them, uh, especially because he is someone that can handle the ball. And you figure if you share the ball handling responsibility instead of putting it in Simmons's hands every single time, then maybe that helps you cut down on turnovers as well. So along those lines, uh, I have to ask this question. You guys are going to love this one. If the Sixers do develop into a great team around Simmons and Embiid and Fultz, uh, and like you said, Kyle, they already sort of have figured out the, the star equation, the hardest part, does that ultimately vindicate Sam Hinkie's process? Uh, there are going to be people who, if the Sixers do contend down the line, and it seems like uh, there's a good chance they do, that point to this as proof that tanking works and is worth the years of deliberate losing. It means the bet paid off. I mean, it was always a bet, and the the argument against it, which I made, and you know, I think like yeah, we both made, agreed, yeah, um, was that you are leveraging like your present, saying that the the games being played this year, next year, next year, and the next year 
don't matter. That like having watchable, like enjoyable basketball being played in an arena like on Broad Street in Philadelphia, like is not the concern of like this organization. The concern is to like maximize your chances to get players like this to make runs at the NBA finals. And, like so it's a value proposition. So like it's not something that like can be vindicated or not because like you're saying like these are our values. This is what we value and this is the decision we're making. And so within that they they can win the bet or lose the bet. They have won the bet insofar as like they've got the stars. And that was like not a given because like just by the nature of the NBA lottery, they can like they could have like not gotten these picks. If they had won the lottery in the Embiid year, they probably don't take Embiid as the number one. So I mean, yeah, they it's worked out for them so far. But like also like we're saying about, you know, building around stars and like getting stars, yes, it's worked out insofar as getting stars, but like throwing out four seasons, like the bare minimum is you want to be a perennial, let's say conference finalist because we've, because the premise then is we don't want to be a team that like exits in the, in the second round every season because you can build that without tanking like so profoundly. Mm. So this, that is the bare minimum that they have to then achieve because if the premise is like we don't want to be a second round team, well, you can be a second round team without doing all this. So you have to be better than that at a consistent rate. I, I think. Some of it, yes, absolutely, it's been vindicated in the sense that they got the hardest part of this figured out. Really, a, a decent average front office should be able to do the rest from here on out to at least make this team a real contender, assuming, again, that Simmons and Embiid are healthy enough to continue to progress. But I, I think some of what was wrong with Philly, yes, they obviously weren't trying to win as far as from the front office's standpoint. But... I mean, some of it was the fact that Embiid, I don't know that anyone expected Embiid to miss nearly as much time as he did. And then even once he got rolling and they were a good team with him on the floor last year, he was hurt again and he was hurt for all the other times. And so, yes, they probably would have won at least a little bit more had he been healthy. Simmons got hurt uh, late in the process last year before they got the season going. Clearly, as good as he is right now, had he been healthy and had he been anything like what he is right now, they would have won a little bit more. And so, yes, it was clearly a, a long view that they took with this, much longer than a lot of people would have liked, much longer than I'm sure a lot of their the older people in their fan base would have liked because some people probably feel like you could get there without doing this. But the truth is, and Neil and I studied this with the story that we wrote about them, it is very, very rare to have guys this young on this sort of team. And when Shaq and Penny is one of the only duos you can point to with this level of talent at this age, I think that tells you right there, especially because of how that team was built and the fact that they did win the lottery twice, the Orlando Magic, it tells you that it requires a lot of luck if you don't take the route that they took. It's possible. It's just very, very unlikely that you get a team with this sort of stardom and this young of an age. And so I, I can't really knock it. I, I, I was very critical of some aspects of this and particular not having any veterans on this team and kind of what that meant for the progression of other people. Uh, I think Okafor kind of, um, bore the brunt of a lot of that, but you know, I, it's hard to argue against it now because they're in a very, I think a lot of teams will envy where they are a year or two from now, if not sooner. And you're talking about a lot of luck. Uh, even if they get bad luck with these dudes at this point, let's say the worst case for, Ben Simmons is, like we said, like enormous Rajon Rondo. Enormous Rajon Rondo is a hell of a player. Pretty good. Like the worst case for, for, uh, Embiid is, uh, kind of 
maybe marginally worse, but also enormous Sean Kemp. Like, <laughs> I mean, what like what are we talking about here? Yes, yes. Like, they can have bad luck with development from here and still have, like, a really good team. Like, I guess that's another. 51 team, easy. Yeah, like, uh, GP and Sean Kemp. Like, yeah, great duo. Uh, went to the finals. But, um, so just quick to, for Chris and Neil, like, with Markel, like, y'all think he's going to come back and, like, get it done? Because, like, the shot thing is bizarre. Like, I'm deep in my conspiracies right here where I've been, like, creeping on his Instagram account. And you remember, <laughs> you remember how, like, his, his agent was like, he can't lift his, uh, his arm past his shoulder. Like, it's, the pain is too much. Well, if you look on the Instagram, his shooting shoulder, uh, <laughs> he is raising it straight up in the air to put a t-shirt on with, uh, you know, his abs out and whatever. He's, he looks great. Uh, but I don't know. Like, are, are, like, you, are, Kyle, these... are you making some of those like Microsoft Paint, uh, you know, arrow based uh... triangles here? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, 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 like, yes, I am. Yes, because <laughs> uh, like it's a, it's a bizarre story where like this dude like just seemed to have like his shot totally altered when we came in. They said it was an injury. Uh, we haven't heard that much about the injury since he came back, or like he hasn't come back, and. Like it's just something that like just disappeared from like the thing we're talking about. So I, I, at least hoping that they were being honest about that because his shot changed so much and got so ugly for no other apparent reason that I I, I just imagine that no one would shoot that way unless it were painful. It's painful for me to watch, so I'm sure it's painful for him to shoot that way. At least I hope it was. He had a pretty decent looking shot a good looking shot before that if anything the guy that we were talking about with the ugly shot was lonzo and frankly even this week lonzo shot looks a lot better uh it looks like he's kind of worked some things out with his jump shot but i i have to imagine until i'm proven otherwise that that he's he was only shooting that way because he was in pain if he's not and that's the shot he comes back with He's going to need to work through it more, and that would concern me because I was under the impression that that's the only reason anyone would ever shoot that way is that his shoulder was really hurting him and bothering him. Yeah, officially uh, about two weeks ago, the Sixers confirmed that Fultz is no longer experiencing soreness in his right shoulder and that the scapular muscle imbalance is resolved. So hopefully he'll be back by January, but we'll have to keep an eye on that. And we're going to keep an eye on the Sixers as a whole just because they're a super interesting team, uh, and, and this won't be the last that we talk Talk about them, but we're going to wrap things up with them there, and uh, let's close out the episode with a segment we like to call "Small Sample." But before that, let's have a word from another sponsor. Nothing compliments a crisp December day quite like a cup of coffee, and not just any coffee. I'm talking about coffee that's so delicious and so flavorful that you realize you've been drinking subpar coffee your whole life. That's Blue Bottle Coffee. Simply put, Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee on the planet by working directly with growers from all over the world. And talk about taking freshness seriously. You can place your order online and within 48 hours, your beans are roasted and shipped right to your home. So your beans are at your door at peak freshness. No more sitting on a store shelf for weeks. And you never have to worry about flavor because Blue Bottle has something for everyone's taste buds. From lighter fruit-forward profiles to deep chocolatey espressos. Hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash lab, that's L-A-B, for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. And while you're there, be sure to check out their digital holiday store, because Blue Bottle Coffee makes a great gift, and there's still time left before your various holiday outings. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash lab. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash lab. 
All right, it's time for our small sample size segment. This is the time of the show where we discuss an emerging trend that doesn't have a lot of data behind it yet, but might still end up being meaningful before the end of the season. And this week's small sample is all about Spurs star Kawhi Leonard, who returned to the court about a week ago after missing the season's first 27 games because of a right quadricep injury. Uh, and so our small sample, the only sample we have of Leonard in the NBA this season is three games. 16 minutes per game of action in those three games. Uh, and he's also missed a couple games since coming back uh, due to rest. Uh, and in that span, he has been a little bit rusty. Uh, he's played to the worst box plus minus, win shares, pl- uh, actual plus minus, if you look at on versus off of his career so far. Uh, but I wanted to put out there basically just last year's biggest what if was could the Spurs, had they had a healthy Kawhi Leonard, beaten the Golden State Warriors. And right now, we don't really have much evidence toward that uh, going forward this season. And given the way that Pop has been gingerly bringing Leonard back, I'm not sure when we will get an answer to that, if at all, during the regular season. So I wanted to put that to you guys. What do you think about, first of all, what you've seen from him in the three games so far, uh, and, and also about the idea of when will we know how good the Spurs team is? Because we know how good they are without Leonard, and they're pretty good, but they're not Warriors good. They went 20-8 and eight, uh, without him through this Wednesday. Uh, so, yeah, what do you guys think about the, the Spurs so far, and, and when we'll know? about Leonard uh, and the whole Spurs, the Spurs as at their full potential. I don't think we're going to know about that until Leonard's all the way back into the rotation because part of the Spurs like curve was factoring in the aging curves of like their their stars that whatever who are, you know, aging like coming out retiring alongside the ascendance of Kawhi. And like every year Kawhi comes back with like something else added to his game. A few years ago he came back and like all of a sudden he was a great spot-up shooter. Like, then he came back, and he was, like, all of a sudden, like, moving off the ball much, much better. Uh, then he came back, and all of a sudden, he's running the pick and roll much more than he ever had, and he was doing that well. Like, not, you know, proficiently. At, like, at, he wasn't James Harden, but he was doing it well, and he was scoring off of it and setting guys up in a way that, like, he hadn't done before. Like, that had fallen to, to Boris when Boris was around. That had fallen to a little to Patty, but, like, other players. Manu when he was on the court. Right. And so what Kawhi has this season when he didn't have an off season where he was able to be on the court, you know, being a gym rat all the time, um, is that enough to make, and the Spurs have played fine without him, obviously, but ha, ha, is, has he added like anything to the game? Are the things that he's added in past seasons as sharp as they were in the past? Because, you know, he wasn't fully healthy in the off season to, you know, go over them. Uh, those things are important, like of just, yeah, Kawhi's like a great athlete. He's a great defender, great all these things. But he's also like added things like very meticulously to the game that like we have to see like what he has, if he has anything else, and like how that like weaves into the the roster. Yeah, it's it's way too early. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I don't even. It might be the first small sample that I don't really have an opinion on one way or the other. I mean, it's too small Kawhi Leonard, a by definition, you would think would help your team. And I'm sure he will, if for nothing else, defensively, but also because of the big superstar leap that you wrote about last year, Neil, and and Kyle did actually too, and and just the fact that he was so good offensively last season, you figure that that will come back with time. Now what it will do, it will change that offense too. It's a team that really, really moves the ball a lot. LaMarcus Aldridge obviously took on a lot of the post-ups and kind of isos that, that Kawhi would have had, but it was an offense that was – not unrecognizable because they still move the ball very well, but it was an offense where 
all of a sudden the three guys that they had last year, Simmons, Tony Parker, and Kawhi, were all either on another team or out of the lineup. And so they were having to manufacture offense differently. Aldridge was doing some of that, but you figure that the look of the offense is going to change now where they're going to run more pick and rolls. They're going to have more ISOs and clear outs for Kawhi. And so that stuff will come back with time, but it's hard to know whether or not they're at a new level or if they can reach a new level from where they were last year. Aldridge really might be a bigger question than Kawhi in that sense, just in terms of can he sustain what he's been doing when going from being the guy when Kawhi's not there to being another option, another number one option, basically. If he can do that and not crumble the way he did last year when Kawhi got hurt, then maybe it's a conversation, but I still don't quite see them. At this point, Houston, in my mind, has kind of replaced what San Antonio was supposed to be as far as Golden State's competition. Yeah, and and one of the things when we were writing about MVP candidates last season, the two things stood out about Kawhi. First was, like you mentioned, Kyle, he was the most complete player in the league in the sense that he had just was there were no holes in his game he was above average at pretty much every facet of playing the game of basketball and then the other calling card was just the fact that you know he was the only guy that could claim that without him the team was uh, pretty good but not a championship caliber team and when you add him onto it he was able to elevate it from good to legitimately championship caliber type of team like I mentioned earlier, with without Kawhi so far this season, the Spurs have the 14th best offense and the second best defense in the league. They again went 20 and eight. Those are good numbers. They're not necessarily going to instill fear into the Golden State Warriors' hearts, and that's really what everyone is targeting, uh, especially if you're the Spurs in the West. And so maybe the biggest unanswered question is how long will it take for Kawhi to get back into that MVP form? And they're the team that sort of needs that the most from him. They were the one that needed it the most from him last year and you saw what happened after he got knocked out of that playoff series too is that a pretty good Spurs team without him isn't cutting it but a really great Spurs team with him could be the difference between contending for a championship or coming up short again I mean and that would be amazing too if they get back to the level where they were last season where I mean the other small sample is plus 21 in 24 minutes which was (laughs) Kawhi was on the floor for 24 minutes, and they were beating the brakes off of the Warriors. In game one. Mm-hmm. And, like, Pop was, like, furious after that game. He was, you know, as close to, you know, cussing out as, like, you'll ever see him. But then he stopped, and, like, the line that sticks with me is, man, we were up by 20 or whatever it was against this team in this arena. Man, that was pretty cool. And, like, you could just tell that, like, he thought, they thought that, like, they could do this thing. And if there are three teams in the West, or at least, that, like, have a shot like that, where, like... In the second round, we're going to be getting series like this. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so no, I'm I'm hoping that they can get back to it. And like we're saying earlier, like yeah, they're the team that needs it the most, but they're also the team that can benefit from it the most because they've got all these specialists. And like like we're saying with uh, with Simmons and Embiid, like it's about how many things that you can get on the court at once. And so because Kawhi is so good, so above average, like to excellent at so many things. Then he allows you to bring in specialists that like might not make sense on a in a lineup that like doesn't have Kawhi like holding down a lot of things at once. You know, I I don't I wrote about this last year. I I still as a basketball fan and someone that wants to see good games. And so last year's playoffs to me were kind of disappointing because there were such big blowouts for the majority of the time with the Warriors and obviously Cleveland until Isaiah Thomas got hurt. And then all of a sudden the Celtics looked like they had a chance. Not really, but. The, you know, these blowout games, 
it, it sucked when Kawhi got hurt. That's the best way to put it. But I wasn't totally, totally convinced that the Spurs were going to win that game anyway. Uh, I, I wrote a story last year basically looking back at the game where the Spurs were up by 22 at home during the regular season and then still ended up losing that game by 12 to the Warriors in a game where Kawhi was playing. And so, and I actually think that might have, wasn't that a game where Durant didn't play? And so that it's just, it's strange to think that the Warriors are so good at these sorts of comebacks. I don't know what would have happened, but it is a really great what if, and it tells you about how great the Spurs were, that they could even have a lead that big on a Warriors team that was that dominant to begin with. In the playoffs, you remember the Warriors still had not lost a game in the playoffs at that point. And so it, it will be interesting if they can get back to that level, just because like, like I was just saying, it would give us three teams all of a sudden, and, and, you know, two of those teams would have to play against each other at some point, uh, whether it be the semis or, or otherwise to kind of settle that score to figure out who even makes it to the conference finals. And so that that would be awesome. Uh, you know, it I, it would be even better if Oklahoma City could get their act together so that you could have four legitimate contenders out there, but um I'll settle for three if that's what it comes down to if the Spurs are going to be there and Kawhi helps lift them to that spot. Yeah, and either way it seems like given the way Kawhi has been easing his way back in, we we might not get any hints on that what if uh until maybe the playoffs themselves start. Okay, so that'll do it for this week's show. We're going to be back with a brand new episode next week. We don't let holidays stop us from recording shows. Uh, In fact, we'll be doing a special episode where we answer listener questions about the season so far, so be sure to check out our feed for that particular episode. Our podcast producers are, as always, Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. We did not receive production assistance from our usual intern, Dan Levitt. He is departing our company soon. We're very sad to say goodbye to Dan, but we wish him the best uh, in his future endeavors. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. And whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're also there. We're on Apple Podcasts, for instance. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. You can also find us in the Listen tab on the ESPN app. Wherever you find us, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.